turn to Luke chapter 9. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. It's right after Peter had given his confession, confession of Jesus, saying that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And as you find your place there, I had a great question after service this week. Um, As we learn, Jesus blessed Peter uh, for being the first to confess him as Christ. If that's so, what do we make of Andrew's confession uh, quite a bit earlier when he had told uh, some of the disciples, even his brother Simon Peter, that we have found the Christ? What about others who had already referred to Jesus as uh, uh, the son of David? Or, Or those like the woman at the well who had gone to her hometown and even told them this might be the Christ or could this be the Christ? That's an excellent question, one that needs uh, an answer. And that answer rests in previous notions about Christ. You know, Israel was expecting a Messiah who would be more of a deliverer in the vein of uh, Moses. Uh, One, a human leader who would liberate them from uh, their situation as Moses led them out of Egypt through the Red Sea. Uh, They were expecting a human type uh, deliverer like a man uh, that would lead them out of the bondage of Rome and initiate then a period of prosperity for Israel, a a fix-it man. That view of Christ, folks, is inadequate. Jesus didn't come... Uh, to improve your life circumstances. He came to die for the world's sin, and and the substitution will take far more than just a human prophet. The substitutionary atonement of of hanging on the cross for the sins of the world takes more than a man, and uh, Peter became the first to correctly identify Christ as divine. He said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, right? Right? He's more than just a man, as Colossians 2 verse 9 assures us. In him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So deity is the substance of Peter's confession. That Christ is the Son of God. That that great question came from Jim Thompson. And uh, Peter got the deity right. Christ is the Son of God. He's God in human flesh. But the disciples still had a lot of hopes in Jesus. They hoped that he was going to quickly fix their nation, take away their problems, assume, excuse me, assume his Davidic throne and reign. Uh, this is why last week, directly after Peter's confession, we saw in Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, when Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Uh, At that point, Peter stuck his foot in his mouth and said, By no means, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Surely not. And Jesus rebukes Peter saying, Oh, it surely will. That will happen. And it becomes the first time that Jesus promises his own arrest and his own crucifixion. There will be four times total. This is the first occasion. And Jesus sternly warns his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. It's likely that he didn't want any further interference, as did Peter. No further interference with his Via Dolorosa, his path to the cross. Uh, Remember the crowds we had learned previously were already wanting to seize him and make him ruler forcibly over Israel. Uh, Like Peter, they weren't as receptive 
to a dying Christ. Anyone here willing to follow a dying Christ? Well, in Luke 9, verse 22, Jesus tells his disciples, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised up on the third day. He realized he needed to be sacrificed uh, in Jerusalem. That is the place of sacrifice. He was going to offer his body, his sinless body to God in place of the sins of many, his beloved church. A dying Christ was the only way that salvation could be made possible. Someone had to pay the penalty. For Scripture says the wages of sin is death. What we earn through our sin is separation from God and death. That's what we earn. So that ticket needs to be punched. You know what I'm saying? Somebody's got to fill that gap. Death is the enemy that must be conquered through a resurrection. We have to have a Savior. And God provides no other path, folks. No other path for salvation other than Christ. There's no other remedy for the sins of mankind than the Holy Son of God. No other way but faith in His Son who died for our sins and rose from the dead on the third day. And the progression of this narrative that we've been studying is now very helpful. Do you remember last week when I told you that, that not all of the Gospels, the four Gospels, have every single event of Jesus' life recorded in each Gospel? For instance, all four Gospels have the feeding of the 5,000. That's recorded in all four Gospels. The resurrection is recorded in all four Gospels. But John is the only apostle who records uh, the wedding in Cana. Uh, not, um, no other gospel records that. In the Gospels, the four accounts of the life of Christ were written to complement one another, to illuminate one another. They're, they're not just supplied as carbon copies. That would have about as much purpose as going and buying four copies of the same Wall Street Journal, right? You wouldn't have any further information. You just have the same thing. Nothing gained. So they're, they're designed as Gospels to complement one another and fill in the blanks uh, of the storyline of Christ. But in this section of Scripture where we land today, all three of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which all, by the way, record Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ, in this section, the sequence, the progression is the same. Number one, Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ. Number two, Jesus warns the twelve not to tell anyone. Number three, he then informs his disciples that he must travel to Jerusalem and, and suffer many things at the hands of wicked and godless men. And then number four, Jesus commands everyone in this crowd, deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. This renowned statement is where we land today in Luke chapter 9 by the sovereign hand of God. I will read this passage for you. Headed to Jerusalem now, Christ set His face to go to Jerusalem. Scripture says in verse 23 of Luke chapter 9, And He, meaning Jesus, was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after Me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow Me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses 
or forfeits himself. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I say to you truthfully, there are some of you standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Jesus makes this statement to everyone remaining now with him. After the mass defections of John chapter 6, verse 66, many of his disciples defected from following Jesus when they felt the teaching got too hard. They were unwilling to walk with him any longer. And it becomes impossible, really, to conveniently excuse ourselves from this command. Having the hopes that this command maybe is only to the twelve. Maybe we can just assign this to the twelve apostles. We can't do that because in Mark 8 verse 34 we are told at this same point that Jesus had summoned the crowd along with his disciples. And you can see for yourself looking in Luke chapter 9 verse 23, Jesus was saying this to them all. If anyone wishes to come after me, not just the disciples, to everyone. The, the command is all-inclusive, folks. Back in Texas, if you had someone that you wanted to get their attention there standing right next to you, you'd say, hey, you all come over here for a minute. If you wanted the whole room get everybody's attention, you'd say, hey, all y'all, right? So in the vernacular Greek in the original language here, Jesus is saying all y'all. Everyone, meaning everybody here, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. He had just clarified he is going to Jerusalem to endure his cross and die. And now Jesus calls everyone following him to also endure their cross, and die. This is where it gets a little bit tricky. This is where, out of convenience, sometimes people will over-engineer this command to take up their own cross. They proceed to define what their own cross is on their own. Determine for themselves what reasons they might be willing to die. So it becomes necessary for us to actually Follow him and discern what exactly Jesus is dying for. It's essential to determine for what reason he endured his cross. Because if we're going to actually deny ourselves and follow him, um, it'd be important to know for what purpose he was dying for. People prefer to fabricate their own crosses, folks. You know, to, to fashion a cross that kind of fits the shoulders and the center of the back nicely. A cross that is bearable, um, sometimes even for trivial preferences. You know, well, I, I married Joe. You know, Joe, Joe's a great guy. He's a good, good father to my children. And, you know, he's, he's, uh, he's a good-looking man and all that, but Joe doesn't have a real great job. And, you know, we, we, uh, we still like to go out and eat quite a bit, and we don't eat at home much, and we don't have a lot of money, so... You know, I'm never going to get a new kitchen. But it's just the cross that I bear. No. 
No. You poor thing. That's just so immature, folks, to fabricate your own cross. That's not a cross. It's decisions that you have made in life. And men, you know, settling for the bass boat with a little smaller engine so that your kids can get their their braces, that's not a cross either. Even, Even pagans will do things like that. It's not bearing up under a cross. That's not what it looks like. Christ went, the, went to the cross and suffered and died for one purpose. To build His church. After Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus essentially responds in Matthew chapter 16, verse 17 by saying, That answer is right, Peter. I am the Christ the Son of the living God. And upon this rock, I will build my church. Why did Jesus bear His cross and die? One reason, folks. To build His church. When Peter foolishly attempted to interfere, Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Can anybody here offer another reason? Any other reason that Jesus suffered on the cross and died and then later rose again, other than to bear the sins and conquer death for His beloved church. Any other reason He hung on the cross? Pay attention, folks. Jesus suffered and died for a purpose. And He didn't even, follow me here, He didn't even die for the sins of the whole world, folks. Let me explain. Yes, being God in human flesh, His death was sufficient to atone for the sins of the whole world. It was sufficient. But the substitution and forgiveness is efficacious only in those who put their faith in Him. Those who exercise faith. But make no mistake, the potential... For the whole world to be saved was there. It was available. It was unlimited potential. However, Jesus bore the sins of those only who will believe. Jesus didn't bear the sins of the whole world on the cross. If He had, the whole world would be atoned for. And the whole world would be saved regardless of whether they ever exercise faith. That notion is known as universalism. That's a false doctrine of the liberal church. Not everybody's going to be saved. Instead, effectual atonement on the cross is limited to a comparatively small number throughout the ages who have believed and who enter through the narrow gate. In that sense, Christ's atonement is clearly limited. It's limited to people who come to faith. The atonement had to be limited or else effectually you become a universalist. Now I realize for those of you who are tracking and RSC Sproul's fans that that's not his definition of limited atonement. But you have to get there at some point. The sacrifice at the cross was limited to people who exercise faith in Jesus Christ. How they get that faith, we'll talk at another time. In John 3, verse 16, you can sense 
The, the unlimited potential yet limited effect of Christ's substitution. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Offer unlimited. But that passage continues. He who believes in him is not judged, He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And then John 3, verse 36, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Atonement limited. Unlimited offer. The unlimited potential of Jesus' death on the cross didn't turn the wrath of God away from unbelievers. So Jesus didn't die uh, for those who never come to believe. They will endure God's wrath on their own. They will pay for their sin debt because they have not believed in Him. What I want you to to gather from this digression, kind of this sidetrack we have here, um, is that Christ went to Jerusalem to suffer and to bear His cross and to die for specific people whose names were written in the Lamb's book of life from before the foundation of the world. Christ didn't just die to make uh, atonement or forgiveness generally available. Generically available. If you believe in Him, He died for you. And the Holy Spirit added you to his church. Jesus' plan was this. I'm going to travel to Jerusalem. I'm going to fall into the hands of sinful men. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to deny my own self-interest for the purpose of my church. I'm going to bear a cross and I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die for those people who are my church. Jesus loves his church. He died for his church. In case you weren't aware, his church is not a building. Might be the first time someone's heard that, folks. His church is not a building. His church is not an organization. Christ's church are the people who've trusted in him. That is his church. It consists of all people who've exercised faith in Christ. Sometimes we refer to, it as, uh, to them as the brethren, the believers. The beloved. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. That's John 10, verse 15 to 18. You can see that. He laid down his life for his church. So when Jesus declares, follow me here. When Jesus declares in verse 23, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily, and follow me, he is also calling you, if you are a believer in him, to also bear up under the cross, and lay down your life for his church. Bearing your cross doesn't describe some unfortunate financial situation where you have to drive your used car for another couple of years. Because some other things went over budget. Those things are trivial, folks, by comparison. Christ's cross isn't 
us budgeting for cars, jewelries, and boats. When I was thinking about this this morning and going through things, I, I thought back to Second Kings chapter 5, and I was thinking about when uh, the Gentile general Naaman came to Israel and was seeking out a prophet so he could be cleansed. He you know, had the leprosy. And Naaman was searching for somewhere he could be cleansed. And he comes to Elijah the prophet, and he's cleansed by dipping in the Jordan seven times. We know that story. If not, I'd love to share with you, uh, it with you later. But Gehazi, the assistant to Elijah, was worried about material things. He, he tracked down Naaman and took some money and some clothes from Naaman after the cleansing, thinking that, his, his boss Elijah wouldn't know about it. Um, he got back. That is Gehazi. And Elijah asked him this, is it time to receive money? Is it time to receive clothes, fancy clothes and vineyards and female servants and male servants? Is this about money? From that point forward, it says that Gehazi that the, that the leprosy that clung to Naaman originally now clung to Gehazi. That isn't what the atonement is about. It's not about what Christ and redeeming and going to the Gentiles and building His church is about. The cross that Jesus is describing is one of denying self, denying selfish interests, and devoting or losing your life Losing your life for the same express purpose for what she gave up his. To build his church. Bearing a cross symbolizes self-denial through setting aside the worldly desires for the disciplines of church. That is the worship, the exaltation of a savior. Edification of the saved and multiplication of souls added for his glory. We are called to set our minds daily upon this purpose. That is Christ's purpose. We must lose our lives for Christ's purpose. We have to lose our lives for Christ. For verse 24 warns, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. When it it comes to your passion for preserving this life, you must be losing it, folks. That, that's not a question. Remember when you first came to Christ? If you have trusted in Jesus and you went home to your mom and your dad and said, I've given my life for Christ, I want to live for Him. And they say, you must be losing it. That, that, that's phrased in a form of a question. Instead, when it comes to your worldly, your materialistic desires, if you're a Christian, Jesus says, you must be losing it. That's a command. You have to be losing your life to be determined to lose your life for His church. He did. And you have to set your minds to it. Um, In verse 24 where it says, save your life or lose your life, that word there for life, it's psyche. Indicates your state of mind, your, your center of thinking, your emotion, your vitality. The term later came to describe uh, different fields of science, psychology and psychiatry and the like, and you're probably familiar with those things. Um, psyche is the reason we have those fields. Yeah, psychologists try to understand your mind. 
They try to figure out your head. They try to get inside your head from what I heard. They, they want to know what drives you. What passion it is that, that drives you. And, and again, back in Matthew chapter 18, um, excuse me, 16, when, when Peter tried to prevent Jesus from going on to Jerusalem, Jesus turned and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. Jesus said, I'm going, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. Peter said, no, you're not. Jesus had to tell him, you need to get your mind right. You've got to get your mind right. Initially, Peter's mind wasn't right. It wasn't aligned to God's interest, but with man's. And like the other apostles, Peter was expecting that, that the reign of Christ that would come in, um, they were hoping immediately that it might be able to get him something out of that life. That Peter might be able to, to get something out of it. Well, he did. You remember what Peter got out of it? Death. Peter got to die later on for the church. Peter was primarily concerned about this life at first. A little later in the same chapter, the disciples are found by Jesus to be arguing, to be debating. Remember what they're debating um, about which one of them might be the greatest which one of them was the greatest? This is what they're arguing about. This is in the same chapter we're in right here. We're going to see it in, in about three weeks. Luke chapter 9. And the disciples are still arguing which one of them is going to be the greatest. And in verse 47, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, Jesus took a child and stood, it, stood him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For the one who is least among all of you, this is the one who's great. The person willing to lower him or herself. You want to see greatness? That's it. A person, according to Jesus, who is great is someone who is willing to lower him or herself to the least. Greatness looks like someone willing to lose their life. For his sake, set aside veins, uh, life's vain pursuits, earthly pleasures. Even to receive a child in the name of Jesus. Relevant to this week? And then in verse 51, Scripture again reemphasizes, when the days were approaching for his ascension, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. He was determined to finish his course. Jesus had calibrated his mind for dying for the kingdom of God. Do you know what the apostles were doing in the meantime? I mean, besides just arguing about which one of them is the greatest, about how incredibly wonderful they are. I wonder what they'd look like if the disciples were here today and they had access to Facebook. Wonder what that would look like. Who's the greatest? I don't know, Tom. I think I'm, I'm greater. That's what I think. Just think. Just to think how immature all of this is. In verse 54, James and John were asking Jesus' permission to call down fire from heaven upon the Samaritans. That's what they were doing at the same time. Jesus rebuked them, saying, You do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save 
them. We'll be looking at that in a few weeks. There exists such a dichotomy, such a difference between God's interests and ours. God's passion and man's. Christ is marching to Jerusalem to give up his life for his church, to, to, to lose his life to redeem men and women. While his disciples are passionate about calling down fire from heaven to condemn them. Sometimes we need to recalibrate, folks. Fortunately, for the kingdom's sake, there are those who will follow Christ, sacrificing their time, talent, treasure, their very own lives, even to receive a child into the kingdom. While others waste their lives calling down condemnation upon everyone around them. What a dichotomy. Thankfully, like the rest of us here, Jesus was able to straighten out these brothers, James and John. Jesus says, no, no, no. You fellas got this all backwards. The Samaritans aren't going to be the ones who lose their life. You are. You are going to lose your life, James and John. And reaching both ends of the spectrum, James becomes the first apostle to be martyred for the church, dying quickly, executed for his faith. While his brother John, the younger brother John, dies daily over an entire lifetime. Serving the church. You you see, when Jesus calls you to lose your life for his church, it doesn't require that everyone physically die. Jesus did. James did. Christians around the world today still do, in some countries, give up their life for their profession of faith in Christ. You and I might have to someday. We don't know. But the idea of losing your life here for most requires a lifelong commitment of denying self for the exaltation of Jesus. Denying self. Exaltation, the worship of Jesus, the edification of his church, and the multiplication of souls being added. That's what Jesus is into. Jesus doesn't actually expect most of us to physically die as a martyr. How do I know that? Well... Look with me at verse 23. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Christ endured his cross and died physically one time for the sins of his church. That was a literal one-time death. He died once, then he rose again. But to all of us, Jesus demands that we bear our cross daily. You see, uh, we deny ourselves and bear our cross day after day after day for His purpose. Daily. Doesn't demand a physical death, but does demand losing your life. Because in verse 24, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. Folks, you better lose your life if you want to save it. Better be losing it. Because the one who wants to save his life or her life on this earth is guaranteed to lose it. 
This describes people unwilling to deny self, deny the world, deny what 1 John 2.16 says is all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. They're unwilling to lose their life, but they will in the end. They will lose their life at the judgment. Such people are going to die in their sins because they haven't correctly understood Christ and his gospel. And you see, according to this passage... This is important, folks. According to this passage, the willingness to deny self and give up your life for Christ's church is not offered here as a measure of sanctification. Jesus is not here distinguishing mature Christians from those who are less mature or from those who are immature. He asks in verse 25, For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? In the parallel account in Mark 8, verse 36, that's Mark's record of the same occasion. Jesus phrases it this way, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Again, Mark 8, verse 36. Jesus says, Take up your cross and follow me or forfeit your soul. Denying self for building Christ's church. It's a condition of salvation. Jesus is warning people who have made a verbal confession of Christ, as did Peter. Many people do that. Who might err by by then turning their attention to preserve their life in the here and now. Their lifestyle, their their image, their their fortunes, etc., etc., After a superficial verbal confession, they believe they can return to their previous priority of preserving this life as they had it. And ultimately, they will forfeit their souls. Again, this imperative to bear the cross, bear your cross, isn't given to distinguish mature sheep from immature sheep. Jesus is separating the sheep from the goats. Believer from unbeliever. Verse 26, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory, and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. It's Matthew 23, uh, excuse me, 10 verse 33 type declaration. Whoever denies me, I too will deny him. Many people identify themselves as Christians. Many have made the profession that you are the Christ, as did Peter. Many of those will lose their lives and perish. Matthew 7, verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. What is the will of the Father who is in heaven? That his Son will be glorified on earth through the exaltation of worship, the edification of the saved, and the multiplication of his church. Jesus was born on earth and came to live with us a sinless life and then die for one purpose, to build his church. He's inviting you to lose your life to build the same thing, folks. If you're a believer, God has spiritually gifted you in some way or another, some form, for one thing, his church. 
That could be through evangelism. It might be through spiritual services of worship. It could be numerous roles, financial giving, gifts of mercy, etc., etc. Whatever ability it may be that builds his church. That's what we're to be focused on, our minds. And just in case you you might not realize, just again a definition of the church. This was shared with me. I'm doing some premarital counseling right now. I'll be doing a wedding in a couple weeks. And one young gentleman, we were talking about him and his wife and being married and, and devoting to a church and leading his family in the church. And he said it right when he said, yeah, the church isn't just a man and wife sitting under a tree with their Bible. That's a family devotional. That's not church. That's your family. You and your children at home is is a family devotion. That's not having church. Christ's church is comprised of his brethren. Those who are of different color. Those who are of different um, backgrounds. Those who are different financial levels. Those who are different um, peripheral understandings of scripture. Again, peripheral. We're not talking deity of Christ. It's those who Christ has died for and for whom he calls us to die for in service to his church. There's that one passage we've gone through here before uh, a couple of times in the last four years uh, wherever two or three are gathered. And you look at the context of that. Jesus never says wherever two or three are gathered is his church. Wherever two or three are gathered, um, he is with us. He's with you alone in prison if you're alone. There's a different context to that Matthew 18 that we could share with you. Um, Folks, church is loving the unlovely. It's not staying at home to avoid the unlovely. If Christ loved them enough to die for them, to give his life, even though people are difficult, if you don't believe me, just ask my wife. It is loving those who Christ loved his church. The reality is here that Christ is not requesting in this passage. He's requiring. Jesus insists Christians stop majoring in the world and start majoring in his church. So what purpose in life captivates your mind? You can leave as we depart with that on your, on your conscience. Would you like to know what the world, the unsaved world, is captivated by? Mickey pancakes, chrome mufflers, and tan lines. You can, you can determine for yourselves what those represent. That's what the world is captivated by. That stuff takes a lot of time, a lot of tension, a lot of resources. Now, it's not easy spending an entire life on the beach. It takes a lot of time to look good, have a good tan line. What are Christians captivated by? Visiting the sick worshiping Christ, bearing one another's burdens, washing the feet of the brethren, suffering rejection for the gospel, clothing and feeding the Christian brother or sister in need, visiting orphans and widows in their distress, etc., etc. That takes a lot of time too, folks. It takes a lot of devotion. In fact, it takes an entire life. You have one. Everyone here has one life. You're going to lose it. You get to lose it. Where do you prefer to lose it? 
Do you prefer to preserve the life you so cherish now and then lose it forever at the judgment? Or do you believe the promise of Christ that if you're willing to lose it now, if you're willing to give it up now, then it will be preserved for eternity at the judgment? As we depart in this passage, Jesus insists that you will choose. As Joshua told the Israelites in Joshua chapter 24, verse 14, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. But for as, me, as to me and my household, we will serve the Lord. I'd like to close with a familiar prayer, familiar to most of us. The Lord's Prayer is found in Matthew chapter 7. If you don't know it, you can uh, see the words there on the screen. This is when Jesus was teaching his disciples to pray. I'm going to close with this and then afterwards ask God's blessing on our meal. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Father, as we depart, as we have lunch, We pray your blessing upon every family here, Lord, that you'll encourage them, that you'll strengthen them in your holy word. Lord, we thank you for your beloved church, the people we've grown to love to give our lives for, Lord, all for your glory. Thank you for this meal. We ask that you bless it in Jesus' name. Amen.